This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And James McBride, oh, wow. Does James McBride actually need an introduction? I mean, think about it. Good Lord Bird won the National Book Award. Deacon King Kong was an Oprah pick. And everyone, everyone remembers The Color of Water, which is his memoir that kind of kicked off everything. And now we've got the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which is fabulous. It's the new novel. It's just out. So obviously we're going spoiler free in this conversation. James, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Well, as they say on NPR, thank you for having me. (laughs) That's That's what they tell you to say. Thank you for having me. You know, we're not fancy. I'm a bookseller. I'm just excited to talk to you about your work because I love your books. And Heaven and Earth opens a little bit like Good Lord Bird, actually. You do a little flashback thing, and then suddenly we're in the middle of, what, 1936 in a tiny part of a town in Pennsylvania. And I'm hoping you'll set it up a little bit because that'll set me up to ask you a question. Well, um, I I can't remember how Good Lord Bird opens, but... um... Oh, it's the flashback with, with... Onion telling us. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. How yeah. we got it's it's basically a flashback, like how we yeah yeah. Yeah, it was just one of those things. I mean, you know, you're just trying to get the song to play. That character who opens the the Heaven and Earth grocery yeah. store is an old Jewish guy that the cops, mm-hmm. you know, are suspect of a murder, and they go to see him, and and then he be, he begins. He basically points the reader in the direction of the story. The first chapter or the first part of the book. The first three pages, so it just sets up the story and then allows yeah. us to get into that world right. of you know this this part of town called Chicken Hill where all the blacks and Jews live, and it's the 1930s, and and it's every man for himself. It's sort of a a microcosm of small town America. My small town America mm-hmm. is different than like the Mayberry small town America yeah. that you see in the Andy Griffith show. And the truth is that most small town Americas were not like Mayberry. A lot of them were like Pottstown, which is my, which is there's a real Pottstown. This is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of fictional elements, but, you know, where the blacks and Jews and poor immigrants, Irish, Italian live. And that's where a lot of the fun happens. Right. You know, a lot of the action. So we've got a Jewish couple, Shauna and Moisha, and they have a grocery store on Chicken Hill, the Heaven and Earth grocery. And there were bits of Chana that I felt like I had met before. And you sent me back with this new novel. You sent me back to The Color of Water, which is your story and your mom's story and your sibling's story. And there's some bits where I think your mom is a lot of this book. And her mom is a bit of Chana, too. Just Well, yeah, I mean, Chana is a disabled person. She has polio and my grandmother had polio and. Um, I mean, this, it just kind of landed in the grocery store because it initially began at the theater with Moshi, but he falls in love with this, you know, he's a Jewish guy, immigrant, Romanian Jew from Romania, and he falls in love with a, you know, a Jewish girl, a woman, young woman, who happens to be working a grocery store that's owned by her father. So I had a lot of reference because my grandmother was married to, a, you know, a so-called rabbi. And my mother was raised in that in that grocery store in Suffolk, Virginia. So a kind of a lot of the experiences that Chona had, I didn't have to reach far for that character to come to life and start moving around. I mean, at some point it did occur to me that I wanted, you know, my grandmother, my real grandmother, my Jewish grandmother, did not have a very happy life in part because her husband was a was a mess and and you know, she was isolated in this small town in the south where anti-Semitism was very rampant. And so I wanted Chona, I wanted my grandmother to have a better life. So I put her on the page and I made her loved. But I, I won't say I made her loved. Chona was loved by everybody because she just had such style. She was so far ahead of things. I, I You know, because, because of my mother's history and my own history, I suppose I have become a fan of Jewish women in the earlier part of the 20th century, like, uh, you know, like Bell Moskowitz and, and uh, Emma Goldman and people like that. These were mavericks, man. They were like far out, you know, and they had to do a lot of hiding and ducking and do all this business, but they got the business done. So, 
you know, a lot of these were things were fused into Jonah's character. And then she just, she started to roll. And in my book's character started to take over. And Jonah just took over the book. I mean, she was great. I mean, you know, she was a wonderful character. And then, of course, she and her husband come up with this problem where they have to, you know, they're confronted with this business of having to hide this deaf black child, mm -hmm. boy, yep. from the state. And it's really Chona's idea. It's really Chona's accepts the challenge. Her husband doesn't really, but she does. And it ends up drawing the whole community mm -hmm. into the Chicken Hill, into the, the dramas that take place inside the Heaven and Earth grocery store. And of course, it, you know, several important black characters are involved as well. So it's very much a James McBride novel. There's a lot that shaggy dog story kind of quality to Deacon King Kong. There's a lot of that here. You introduce characters and I'm like, okay, where are we going? What's happening here? It's well, really uh, excellent. There is a musicality though. There is a musicality to your novels. Even if we're talking about Good Lord Bird, there is something not just in the dialogue, not just in the characters' names. I mean, Fatty and Paper and Dodo and Monkey Pants. And I mean, there's some great names of characters in this book, but it's also just the way you talk about the place itself, the way people come together. It's fun, even when you're talking about complicated stuff. The sum of your life is what you pay attention to. Right. And so all of us have complicated pieces of business. We were talking off camera, you and I, you said your brother plays the saxophone, right. he plays Selma. And, you know, I know what a Selma is because I have a I have a Selma and he's, he's not, he doesn't have his Selma with him. He has his, his other horn. And I, I you know, as a saxophone player, I know like if a, if a cat has a Selma and he doesn't have it with him, he's probably not playing like he's not playing Carnegie Hall. He's probably playing something, you know, mm -hmm. not quite as important. He can kick it around, knock it around a little bit. But, you know, it's some, only something that he and I would know or you because you're his sister. But the, the point is that he's still making the music for somebody and he's simplifying somebody's life and he's making somebody a little bit happier today when he picks up that horn and sticks it in his mouth. That's what counts. A lot of the stuff that we go through doesn't count. So, you know, what I try to do in my books is I, I really want people to show, I just want to show how we get along and we manage despite the complexity of things. And uh, despite that, you know, we're living in a world where, you know, evil often succeed and villain, villains succeed and heroes sometimes die. We still manage to get along pretty good and sometimes have fun at the same time. I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. The amount of laughter, like I, I, I'm not openly cautious if I'm reading you in public because people need to be prepared for me to be very loud and laughing a lot when I'm reading your stuff. But this book feels a little more personal for you, I think, than the last couple. And I know, you know, you talked about Deacon King Kong and how those characters come out of people you knew in your childhood, right? Like you actually knew people like Hot Sausage and Chicken. And you have written a whole riff on Chicken Man in The Color of Water. And I'm just wondering if that made you looser on the page, if that let you go places you hadn't gone before. Well, it really does feel like you're you're in it in a different kind of way in this book. I, I, I am actually, you know, I mean, I, not that I never thought of it that way. I was always a little bit reluctant to write about Jewish characters. Right. Because, you know, Jewish readers can really be fussy. When I did The Color of Water, you know, I'd go around, people say, why did you say this? And, you know, I mean, if you can find two Jewish people that agree on anything, like I'll give you a hundred dollars right now. I mean, right. so I didn't really want to get into that too much because I didn't really want to have, you know, the idea of going around and publicizing a book and then having people raise their hand and say, you know something, what you should have said, because I just think that it gets into like a lot of complicated business of people's lives that I really don't want to, I'm not interested in it. Right. If you have like a, you know, some kind of, moral religious thing to play out i ain't the guy to be doing that with mm -hmm. but i i did i did love my mother yeah and i did love her mother although i never met her mm -hmm. and i've gotten to know several members of my my jewish family mm -hmm. um and we're a complicated family but we're still a family right and we still laugh a lot we still have lots of things that are good for people to hear but so i wanted to kind of explore that that part of my creativity and also i worked at this camp when i was in college that was run by a jewish guy and he was just an extraordinary guy yeah 
uh, he was gay and, you know, he had to hide it, although we all knew it. And it was just a great experience for us. We all learned a lot. When I say we, I mean the staff, we learned more from him and the kids than we learned from, from anywhere else in many ways. And I wanted to honor him. And that's how the book really started. It really started to honor him in this camp. Right. I couldn't write about a camp. It was like, it was close campy, you know, and then we're singing. So it just didn't work. It didn't capture the, the wildness of it. Yeah. And the, the improvisational quality of life there, because it was run by someone who really believed in equality for all people. And it got me to notice the thinking about the notions of, and I was hired by an old Jewish guy and the camp was founded by some old Jewish Romanian Jewish theater owners. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, you know, these people were interesting folks. They just were, they had interesting stories. So I, this is what happens when you just, when you, when you play the melody good enough, you, you can start playing j- the jazz follows, you know, we've got the theater sort of down the slope from chicken Hill. Right. I mean, that's sort of how the layout of the landscape is moisture, right. moisture theaters sort of downhill grocery stores in the hills in chicken right. hill right and the way you bring all of these storylines together when i think of you as a writer i think of the love that you put on the community and the way you write about people who don't usually get written about right like maybe the famous theater owners get written about at some point kind of thing but like you're writing about people who do get left out of a lot of stories. Well, that's where I live, you know. <laughs> that's where I live. I mean, those are my people, man. <laughs> uh, and they have the, they're the most interesting people. I mean, to use the, the music metaphor, beat it to death. It's not the first trumpet player that's really interesting. It's the third violinist, you know, who's, right. who's and this is his, this is her third date this month. This is the only, she's had three dates. The first were good, and this is the third one. And there's no more dates, no more gigs until next month. That's a person who's got an interesting life. And, you know, as an African-American who grew up in, in African-American life in New York, you know, I, I've met lots of people like that at this camp, for instance, I was talking mm-hmm. about. Most of those people who worked there didn't become famous. I mean, they did very well, became school teachers and medical mm-hmm. doc, doctors and lawyers. But, you know, nobody knows them. Right. But I know them. And the kids were like... The kids were life-changing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that's why I live. I, I'm not the kind of writer who can go to Florida and kick it, you know, look at the beach and drink, you know, drink a little whatever they drink. I, I can't do that. I lose my mind, right. you know? When did you start working on Heaven and Earth Grocery Store? A long time ago. I started maybe like 2008. I went to Norristown State Hospital and talked my way in. Okay. And um, the people there were kind enough to let me see the place and walk around and mm-hmm. even meet patients and go to the library and go walk in the tunnels underneath. And that's when the research started because I, you know, I started write about a camp and I ended up looking at state hospitals for the so-called mentally insane. And I couldn't get into Pennhurst, but I could get into Norristown, which was still functioning. Pennhurst is closed. Pennhurst State Hospital, which makes an appearance in this book. In any case, I started it. And then I stopped it and, you know, got, you know, uh, Deacon King Kong and good Lord Bird going again. And, you know, you're always, you're always pregnant. You, know, you, always, <laughs> got, you, know, you always got something going. So That's I'm always working on something mm-hmm. you know, while I'm working on something else. And, and, you know, you hope it just, you know, it comes together. So it took a long time. Yeah. Wait. So at one point you're working on these three Amazing books at once. Well, I was Is working on one point. No, I, I mean, I think uh, did the good Lord Bird. I was doing the good Lord Bird while doing the Heaven and Earth, Earth grocery store okay. research. And then that, then I just set it aside. And then I, I rolled into Dinky King Kong. Okay. And I didn't do too much with Heaven and Earth. After Deacon King Kong, I, I got back into it. I always had, like, I would go, at times, I would go visit, you know, when I would travel for one of these books, or was traveling with my band, or traveling as a musician, if I went somewhere, and there was, like, a mental, uh, you know, closed insane asylum, something nearby, I'd go see it. Okay. I'd go visit it. I'd ask people who had experiences with it, and so forth. So, I was always kind of have my eye on getting it Mm -hmm. right. 
um, but that was the hardest part of the book to write really about, you know, yeah. life in that place with, with Dodo, the kid. You have a great line, though, about friendship between Dodo and his buddy, Monkey Pants, that is two boys with intelligent minds trapped in bodies that would not cooperate. The insanity seeming to live on in itself and change them for despite the horribleness of their situation. They were cheered by the tiniest of things like here these two little boys are. And I'm not going to go too deep into it because I feel like it's a giant piece of the book, but I love these little boys. Dodo and Monkey Pants are amazing characters, but you really have to step out of being an adult to write kids like this. Well, you know, the truth is that I knew kids like Dodo and Monkey Pants when I was at the Variety Club camp. What really struck me about them when I first started working with them and, and all through the years that I worked with, and I still know a few of them, they are quite normal. I mean, you know, you get beyond the, you know, the physical part or even some of the mental part. You're dealing with kids who are really smart, who know how to get on your nerves, <laughs> who know how to poke you where you hurt. I mean, yep. uh, and uh, and who rarely ever complain about anything. Are so happy to be living and breathing that they know what's important. And you, when you've never seen real joy until you've seen until you experience how some of these kids find joy in the in the smallest of places. So, you know, one of the great sadnesses I had while writing the book was was when when Dodo has to enter this place, you know. Um, so, and that created some you know plot issues as well because you can't leave the reader with the kid in there. You know, you gotta you, you gotta you gotta get them out some kind of way. And you know, oftentimes, at least in my books, plot. You know, character and plot are weaved together, and they, these these situations kind of come together. And then you you're hoping that one of these one of these things will unroll properly, so that it comes out in a way that that gives you and the reader some hope. There's a little bit of a caper flick happening in a big part of this book, which was a treat because it's like you said, you've got to figure out how to unroll this, how to how to get the story where you need it to go, and it's kind of classic well i mean man you you're just making my day the way you're chatting up I'm <laughs> you. but uh, <laughs> i had a lot of characters to work with you know yeah i had a cat a lot of characters that that i could work with to uh to do this you know to help dodo get rolled out i mean the power of the book really is that chona was a loving person was loved so much mm-hmm. that you know what emanated from her sort of pushed into everyone else's life and pushed their evil aside. And that's the kind of world that I, I like to, to visit and be part of and, and hope that people would be um, amenable to, to learning about. I, I don't want to write a book that depresses people. I, I can't read a depressing book. You know? When you have characters like these, you kind of don't need... <laughs> It's really satisfying. I, that's the one thing I keep coming back to when I read books like Heaven and Earth Grocery Store or Deacon King Kong or Good Lord Bird. There's a verve and a style and just kind of an irreverence to what you're doing where you're just kind of like, well, I know these are the stories you've heard before about other things, but I'm going to actually show you what the world is like, right? Like, you know, there's that riff you have on the American dream when we're talking about baseball. In Deacon King Kong, and baseball is not my game, but the way you talk about how sort of, yeah, we think it's this one thing, and actually it turns out to be nothing like it, right? Or, you know, all of Good Lord Bird and John Brown and Frederick Douglass, and here's Little Onion being like, well, those two, you know, those guys that you keep hearing about, here I am, and I'm actually going to tell you the story. Don't meet your heroes in this world. Oh, you meet I your heroes, okay. you'd be, be totally disappointed. <laughs> So it's better that you just have some guy or some person on the side saying, you know, listen, check this out. This is what really happened. That's much better, much more interesting to me and much better than somebody telling me what I should be thinking about it. So, look, at one point in my life, in my rather long life, I worked at People Magazine. You know, I covered Michael Jackson for the People Magazine for six months, like exclusively, you know, like travel with him and all this. And one of the things that magazine really did well was that it just talked about like a little bit of the gossipy things, but then it threw a little taste of the news in there at the same time. 
a little gossipy, a little news, a little gossipy, a little news. That was frankly the only thing I got out of it because I, I really hated working there. But there is people, listen, a story is good. It always begins this way. This is a story about a woman who, you know, or it's a story about a man who, a story about a person who, whatever. People don't really worry about the, you know, the gross national product. If you want to really know how a country's doing, you don't ask about the gross national product. You ask, how do they treat their children and their old people? Mm-hmm. That's It's about people. So books are about people. You ask a question, though, in Heaven and Earth, and I feel like it pops up in, in other books as well. But like, how do you restore something that never existed, right? Like, you've got all of these folks... Chana and Moisha and Fatty and Beatrice and Paper and all of these characters who are living their own lives. They know they're living outside of sort of, let's call it a standard narrative, right? Like there's a whole part of the town with the doctor and then there's a town councilman who's really quite a piece of work and makes some bad business decisions. And so the entire, you sort of take the whole story and say, well, listen, yeah, you don't actually know what you think you know and it's really subversive and fun in a way and i'm wondering where you're starting like i think you start with character right like isn't that where it always starts for you we can all stand our own dirt right right but we can't seem to stand the dirt of others no matter what no matter how no matter who they are Mm -hmm. and that grind is where characters sit up on the page and start moving around Okay. I mean, you can get them to sit up on the page, but to get them to walk from one room to the next, you've mm-hmm. got, there's got to be some grind between them, some secret they have, something that, that rolls out. They don't want everyone to see. I mean, like, I can't look at myself in the mirror sideways. When I look at myself in the mirror sideways, I say, oh my God, man, your head is too huh. big. Your stomach's sticking out. What's the matter with you? You know what I mean? So everyone's got that. Right. So you're trying to show that a little bit mm-hmm. and show how it bumps up against the next person, man or woman. Right. Because we all have imperfections that we work really, really hard to hide. When you peel that back just a little bit, not a lot, because, you know, the mistake that a lot of writers make, they just go like, whop, and they just show them. And that, that's no good. It's just right. like, it, it's not, it doesn't even feel real. But when you just like, you know, you just, just a look, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. just that enough is. Yeah. So that's kind of where that's kind. Of, I kind of work with these characters. You know, in a small town, everything mm-hmm. copacetic. Right. It's not really the Andy Griffith show. People are cutting deals, and yep. I, I covered a small town when I was a reporter. My one of my first jobs in journalism was covering a small town, and these guys were like, and they were all guys. Yep. They were rough, man. They didn't even like each other. <laughs> if you know enough, you have enough mileage on your dominant, you can find things, you can find hooks to hang your story on to make characters connect. Right. So wait, you said that the whole thing starts with this camp that you worked at. Right. This wonderful guy who hired you. Right. But then how do we get to Chicken Hill? Who's the first character who shows up after you decide this is the book that I need to start picking away at? What happened was, you know, I, I've tried to write this book about the camp. Mm-hmm. And I wrote several chapters. And the only chapter that was good was the chapter about this theater owner who opens his theater. And, and you know, he goes into debt. And he's trying to get the great Mickey Katz to come. Yep. Everything else sounded like it just read like Pulp Fiction. So I just got rid of it. I got rid of it. And I went, you know, I wanted to place it in Potts. Ville, which is in Western PA near Pittsburgh. Okay. But it was too far from where I live. And I just happened to, I just, I was driving down the road and I saw a, t- a sign that said Pottstown. I said, well, this is, you know, let me see what this Pottstown looks like. It's not Pottsville. And it was a beautiful town. Mm-hmm. So I started hanging around, asking questions, and there was a real chicken hill there. Oh, okay. And then, uh, and then I started asking more questions about, you know, there was a Jewish temple there. And then, you know, there was a fancy, there was, and still is a fancy school there, private school. And it used to be a manufacturing center where all of these, you know, businesses in Bethlehem Steel and flag industries and then all that's gone. I said, okay, let me place it here. Now I just got to inhabit this place with some characters, Pensgrove, whatever. 
the state institution, mental mm-hmm. institution is just the next town over. Right. So everything's within a really tight radius. Yeah. So, you you know, you have all your physical things there. And then it was about finding, you know, the right kinds of characters, mm-hmm. right kinds of Jewish characters, right. the right kinds of black characters. You know, black characters are very varied in this book and the kind of other townspeople yeah. who make make up this story. All know? right. So when you're sitting down, though, and really committing to the idea of heaven and earth grocery store, right? Are you letting the characters drive or are you just walking through a bit of plot and then you sort of piece it all together? Or is this just you're kind of sitting down and riffing until you have a thing? If you ever hear the first like 20 bars of the song St. Thomas by uh, Sonny Rollins, you'll know exactly what I did. because Sonny okay. Rollins- I actually do know that piece. <laughs> okay, well, if you listen to the first 20 bars of Sonny, of, of Sonny Rollins' solo on, which, you know, I wish having an earth grocery store had that kind of brilliance. It doesn't have that kind of brilliance. But right. what Sonny Rollins did was he has a little, he goes, bit up, and then he just grows off that one, better, and then he flies up and then he comes back to it again. And then right. he goes, and he's a pure improviser. Yes. That's pure improv- improvisation as opposed to these cats who play the same thing, but in a different key. And it, yep. what happened with Heaven Earth's grocery store was that Moshi's relationship and his love with of Chona was so powerful that I just pinged off it. Okay. I just pinged off it and the circle grew wider. And then Addie and her husband, Nate, you know, they yep. their song began. So each character drove the plot deeper and deeper. There was always this idea of how we're going to get somebody in this institution right so that we can show how horrible number one how horrible it is and number two how to get out of it mm-hmm. or how, how how these kids in these institutions who are forced to be with adults so I, it was always about that and really nate's relationship with dodo yep was was kind of the the crutch that pushed pushed the book in into you know it pushed the boat into the water and allowed it to move it's a character driven Piece mm-hmm. of work and plot is always driven by character. Yeah. When it's done the other way around, it never works. This would be a really different book. This would be a wildly, wildly different book. And I think, you know, again, you write with an incredible amount of heart and you can feel the characters being themselves. You are blowing me up, man. I mean, jeez. I, I mean, well, I I'm, just, I'm also noodling around in Deacon King. There's some stuff from Deacon King Kong that I'm trying not to bounce back to because we are talking about Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. But there is some stuff that you do where I'm just like, okay, anyone else, I might raise an eyebrow, but I'm like, no, no, no. This is, this is, I just want to hear the rest of the story. I just want to hear the rest of the story. And there are some moments in Heaven and Earth. And certainly, you know, when we're in the institution, there is some, there's some stuff that made my eyes get really big. But I knew that you were going to get me through to the other side. And that, yes, I would be changed as a reader on the other side, but I would get a very satisfying ending, which, you know, I think we can say that without. Well, listen, I mean, you know, as they say, and, and you know, the customer is always right. But I mean, ah. I, I look, I just want my dreams to come true, but in a way that's believable in yeah. a way that makes, you know, look, the guy who ran that camp that I was telling you about, he's still yeah. alive. Oh, and he seriously? got married and he, yeah, he lives in Florida. His name is Cy Friend. He's, you know, I sent him the book as soon as I was finished. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, I, you know, and when he said he liked it, it meant the world to me. That's So right. you have to suspend your sense of belief when you drag yourself through the keyhole into the room of fiction. Yes. If you can't do that. You shouldn't be doing it. Right. Because it's just too hard to do. I mean, it's, you know, it's just so hard to write novels. Mm-hmm. So... But when they go right, it's there's, there's nothing like it. And at a certain point, it seemed like this was going or it was going right. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think that you know that the spirit sometimes you know entered the room and and got me through some of the more mm-hmm. difficult sections. You know, I did. I think about my grandmother when I was writing it, mm-hmm. and uh, and also wanted to kind of give a nod to the early, you know, the early Jewish Americans from the. In the early part of the 20th century, these union rabble rousers and yep. these socialists and all that stuff they did. You know, they all no one even remembers who they are. E.L. Doctorow does. I mean, yes. E.L. Doctorow wrote about them in, yes. in his books and ragtime and 
and in, in other books as well. And other people have, you know, but I wanted to do it, you know, in, you know, as Frank Sinatra would say, my way. I wanted to do it. You know. <laughs> I wanted to do it. So, you know, so that like, yeah, that's, that's what happened. You've been compared to Mark Twain more than once. Come on. Now. I do want to poke at this for a second because I think of your voice as very, very separate and very James McBride. And even when you're, you know, Good Lord Bird and Deacon King Kong and Heaven and Earth, they all sit on a continuum, right? Like you're looking at America in a way that you remain hopeful, which I always find kind of, I, you know, I'm not a cynical person, but there are times where I'm like, oof, are we going to make it? And it seems to me that you've kind of decided that we are ultimately going to be okay if we get out of our own way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been around the world. I'd say mm -hmm. Americans are still the most fun. <clears throat> it's still the most fun. We've had some difficult moments. And yeah. through any other country, we'd probably be, you know, I don't know. I don't know what would happen to us. But I, I'm not uh, I'm not cynical about what has happened in this country. You know, you have these cycles of, of pain and suffering and everyone thinking of this dystopian future that awaits us. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that way. You you push ahead, you slog forward and... Mm -hmm. uh, you keep a smile on your face, don't worry, it'll be all right. Just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. If I felt like that, I wouldn't be able to write books. I mean, I, I don't want to say, you know, everything is is rosy and cheeky, but if you allow that kind of darkness to cloud your thinking, you're never going to make it. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't, you know, you have to have us. I mean, these jazz musicians who who wrote music, Art Tatum and Train and all these guys, mm -hmm. they, they all faced enormous problems. Right. Y Yiddish musicians as well. I love reading about the Yiddish players. They were complaining, they were get, not getting paid in there. Just like jazz player. Tony Bennett never, I mean, Tony Bennett is a good example. Yeah. You know, I met him one time. He was a wonderful guy, not because he was talented, but because it was just in him to spread, you know, spread something nice to people. Right. That's your job as a writer. And people pay you to do it? Come on. Did I ever tell you about the time I met Barack Obama? You want to yeah, hear please it? Please tell me. The yes, of course I want to hear that. Well, story. I got this, you know, I, I won the, I got awarded the National Medal of the Humanities. Oh, I remember. <laughs> so I was sitting right next to um, Terry Gross. Yep. Fresh Air. Oh, yes. Yeah, man. So anyway, <laughs> I went up there and he put the medal around and then he held his hand out and he said, I appreciate you. That's all he said. I thought that was cool. Listen, we're doing great. We got a really good president and we're doing great. And we're going to do great, you know, with, I mean, let it be said, you know, we have a great president. I'm very proud of him. I'm happy he's president. I think Joe Biden's great. Too old, blah, blah, blah. Let him talk. Let the man do his job. If I have a car that I need fixed, am I going to take it to some 30-year-old guy down the street? Or am I going to take it to a guy who's been fixing cars for 50 years? Let the man do his thing. So that's where I stand on that. Well, I also think that you have this incredible voice, though. You have this very distinctive, very sort of sharp-eyed, but the funny is always there. And I think there are times where I've seen reviews where they kind of miss the point. And I know you don't read your reviews, so you are much better suited on that front than I am because, of course, I read every single one. And there are times where I'm just like, the voice is what matters, right? Like, I know I keep referencing the musicality of your prose and your dialogue and your character. Like, it's just the way all of these pieces come together. I saw Bill Evans toward the end of his life, you yeah. know? And man, I mean, he would sit there and he would play and then he would he would just like, I don't know if he had a drug problem or what, but he would right. just wait. And then when it was time to play again, he would, I mean, and I said, you know, I was my friend, my Leander was, my friend was there. We were so, I said, man, if I could play like that, I would just, I would do anything to be able to express myself that way. Right. Because everything he he everything he did was so full of joy. Even though when you saw him, he didn't look joyful. Right. Every note he played was so full of beauty and joy. It was like watching sunflowers grow. Just, you know. And so I um I don't care what other people think about, you know, what I do. Um I'm happy. I mean, yeah. you know, when 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 I wrote The Call of Water, which is, you know, was my first book, you know, I remember, you know, the first interviews, people were like, you know, how does it feel to be a tragic mulatto? 
But, you know, I never felt like that when we were growing right. up. We weren't a bunch of, you know, black kids staggering through life trying to decide whether to, you know, eat chicken sandwiches or matzo balls. We were just happy. We just did. That was. And so I've never changed in that way. And I'm surprised that people sometimes that 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 people expect you to to know what you really don't know or to be how you really are. Mm. You know, the older you get, the more you become what you really are. Anyway, so I'm hearing a little bit of your mom in you. <laughs> I'm hearing some of Ruth. That <laughs> yeah, could be, you know, that could be. There's just mom. a little bit of Ruth. <laughs> um, and it might have been that I just recently revisited The Color of Water for the first time in a while. But, you know, a million years ago, when that book first came out, your publisher did a little party. More for you than your mom. But I remember your mom at that party and she made sure that we knew mom was at the It was awesome. She was great. But she gave a speech. It was adorable. I, you must remember this. But she got up and man, she made a speech and she had every single one of us listening. And she was she even five foot tall? No, she was yeah, maybe five foot tall. Okay. Maybe. But yeah. it was it was wild and wonderful. And she was wow, she was Ruth. I don't think she realized um the kind of effect that she was having on people. I don't think she realized, you know, the kind of effect that she had even on her own children. Yeah. But I, you know, I will say this that we, you know, we we do miss her greatly. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm I'm glad that, you know. I'm I'm glad she's not here to see what what this this country has kind of gotten itself into. I feel bad that all these people who grew up in the 20s, 30s, and 40s sacrificed so much that we would allow some of these bums to run things. Now they would they would feel like, you know, they've wasted a lot of their time. So I, I you know I mean although things are going to be okay, we, we can't forget we are in the midst of a serious struggle, yeah. uh, and librarians and school teachers. And people who love books are the on the we're we're the last line of reason and discourse, and so we have got to stand strong. So if, if my book makes you laugh and it gives you joy, then good. But if you don't need laughter and joy, there's plenty of other good, good books by plenty of other writers that you know readers need to get with because it, it's you know it's time for us to really put our foot down and and be who we are, which is to be strong. I mean, this book is about strong people. Yeah. There are no weak characters in this book. They're all, they all have opinions, and they all they try to express them as much as they can, however they can. But again, that goes back to letting people who don't always get to tell their stories tell their stories, right? Like that everyone here gets their turn. Okay, pardon, pardon the choice of metaphor, but everyone here gets their turn at the mic. Every character gets their turn. And it may not be the longest solo but everyone makes their point and everyone you can see how it all comes together there is still a little bit of an edge though i mean you are as as optimistic as you are and as hopeful as you are you still have noticed where we are not meeting standards as it were or where we should aspire to be a little more well yeah sure i mean listen this whole you know this whole business of white anglo-saxon protestants who are so proud that they Mm -hmm. You know, that they had the third cousin on the Mayflower. I mean, give me a break. I mean, you know, come on. What difference does it make? You know, you, you go to the ABC or whatever it is, this thing, you know, the MJ23, whatever this thing is where you go find your relatives and blah. How many people I met, you say, I'm related to George Washington. Big deal. Are you helping the world now? If you're not, then get lost. I'm not interested in talking to you. So what's next? Have you started working on the next thing? I've been poking around a little bit, you know. But no, I don't have anything. You know, I've, I've been working on a musical that I wrote 30 years ago. Oh, seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called Bobo's. It's about a kid who wants an expensive pair of tennis shoes. Okay. I wrote it with a guy from Philly named Ed Shockley. And, you know, back then we had no juice on Broadway. They didn't care, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to see running up the flagpole and see what happens. Okay. So I've been rehearsing it. And, rewriting it but i don't have any new books on the horizon now but it doesn't take i don't it doesn't take me long to write a book it takes yeah. me long to research it yeah it's the work it's the research so i mean i have a few things that i'm thinking about but you know i'm just not there yet you yeah. know how long did good lord bird take to research well good lord bird if you go back 
um, I did a book called um, Song Yet Sung, which was, yep. I think that was my third book. Mm-hmm. While I was okay. doing Song Yet Sung, I ran into the story of John Brown. Okay. And that was, that had to be back in 2002 or something like that. Yeah. Long time ago. Mm-hmm. What happened was, I really wanted to write about Abraham Lincoln and I ended up writing about Harriet Tubman. And then writing about Harriet Tubman, I learned about John Brown, I ended okay. up writing about him. So now I might, you know, I might end up, you know, I'm kind of intrigued with Chinatown. Yeah, yeah. I might end up in the Philippines. Who knows? But okay. you know, you just let you follow the you follow the you follow the song. Or the spirit moves you, however you want to describe it. Sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time, and there's the idea, there's the thing sitting in front of you. Look, don't I have a great job? Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, I have a great job. <laughs> I benefit from your great job. Are you kidding me? Well, that's nice to say, but I tell you, I got the best job. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I can't complain about that. You know, I got the best job. So wait, Deacon King Kong, that actually took time to research? Yeah, yeah, because okay. um, not as much as Good Lord Bird or, right. or a grocery store, but um, because the Deacon King Kong had all sorts of business in it that was and New York in the 1960s. Yeah, so you did have to go back. Um, it had South Carolina and the mm-hmm. medical profession. And um, uh, it had art. Oh, and yes. <laughs> art and all that business. And the theft of the art and Deacon King Kong was a bit like the problem of the water in the town of Potsdam yeah. in the heaven and earth grocery store like that you need something that you can you need some hope you need some buoys some lighthouses yeah. so you can float the boat around it and i was lucky that the art thing showed itself when i was doing deacon king kong and with with the um with heaven and earth grocery store the whole business of uh, gus plitzka the town councilman yeah yeah having this problem with the water that's tied to the <laughs> synagogue that had, you know they they did this whole sneaky little bit where they were taking the wrong mm-hmm. kind of water, taking the water they weren't paying for it. It was a lifesaver, really. The whole business of the the bull and the bullfrog and the mikvah was really just just the lifesaver moment, you know. Uh, because it's also very funny. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, the frog was very funny. I mean, it sets off a whole chain of events. One tiny little frog. Well, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much, you know. Um, you just need a little bit. Look, the smaller your story, the better it is. Yes, yes, exactly. But the tinier the detail, the more you can. Yeah, it's yes. The smaller your story, the better it is. That's yeah, the smaller your story. Thing. So if you have a small thing that can say again, going back to that 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 business of Sonny Rollins doing mm-hmm. um, St. Thomas, mm-hmm. um, finding something really small and then just opening it up, and I mean. You know, it when it's just you know, it, you, you make things. Be, you you can you can pull the reader along that way. Hey, speaking of music, I was re-listening to the Process Volume One while I was prepping for this interview. Anything new coming? It's been a while since you've done an album. I mean, yeah. I know you've been working with other people and you've been writing music for a really long time. But what good is a song if you've got if it's not about anything? Okay. You know, there's so many people who write these songs, you know, they go, they say, here's this new song is called, uh, it's called uh, The Brown Coffee. And then they, you know, they make, and then they go, and you forget it, you forget it, you just forget it five minutes past breakfast. I have to have something to write for. Okay. To write music. So I can't really, although I write lots of pretty little melodies at my piano here. And I just got my piano tuned today. It was wonderful to see the guy. He's been tuning my piano for years. I don't really have anything to write about, you know? Okay. I mean, the reason why Steely Dan was such a great band and remains such a great band, Donald Fagan, at least the half that's still alive, is they had something to write about. Yeah. They wrote about things that really counted. And so I can't really write about any, any I can't really put any music together until I have a, well, actually, you know, I did a record two years ago, but I never released it because I didn't, I just didn't, I didn't like it. Okay, well, that's fair. I mean, it's yours to release or not, but you know I had to ask. Come on. Well, that's all right. You I mean, knew, I, you I, knew I was going to ask. Well, I appreciate you asking, even though, look, you know, these young guys play music so well, they don't even need, 
they don't they don't I mean, they don't need me i mean they got you know there's so many good young players now i mean yeah but still i mean did you ever record anything with the band that you were touring with after good lord bird you guys were great yeah we recorded but we didn't really do much with it i mean we didn't you know i i've never had a like a big time record deal you know i've done songs mm-hmm. for people right for labels you know but I've never had the, the the privilege of saying, look, I want to take 50 grand and make a real record that has this and get this mm-hmm. arranger, get that player and all. Never had that privilege. But then on the other hand, I write books for a living. What could be better than that? Well, that's fair. Listen, I've got to have things to say. Yeah. I need a wall to push against. And I don't want to push against the same wall that we're all pushing against now, which is basically trying to, you know, <laughs> trying make sure that democracy survives. But in some ways, I'm, what I'm trying to do with Heaven and Earth and with Good Lord Bird as well is to show the sacrifices that are necessary in order for us to live the life we lead. What, what I haven't addressed in my work mm-hmm. is this whole business of climate change and destroying the world, which is, which is really something that it's big, but it needs to be told small. And how do you do that? You know, I'm thinking about it, but I don't know how, you know, I don't know how. I don't know how to go about that, you know. I think you just need to hear the voice. I think once you know who the character is, you can build from there. But yeah, I would read that novel. I would totally read that novel. Well, listen, our acceptance of the norm mm-hmm. is what is our is at once our greatest. That's our greatest enemy. Mm-hmm. We accept this new heat that we're feeling. We accept the fact that Arctic ice is melting and that the sea is rising and floods become a part of life. That's really that's really where the the game should begin. We have to stop the acceptance of that and move and go backwards. But I suppose that's another conversation entirely. I I I do think though, the whole business of anti-Semitism, for example, is not new in this country. Right. And I'm glad that I had the opportunity to show how it worked in this book. And in a way that is not like you know, it's just like a turn off and, and lecturing and so forth. But then we get Chona too, and she's not having it. She is Chona. She's not having, she's kind of a great example of how not to be stuck in a corner by the system. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, um, listen, I loved her as a character. She's great. I admired her greatly. I mean, I, you know, it was so beautiful to visit with her. I mean, you know, I don't want to tip my hand about what happens Mm -hmm. to her, but if it wasn't for her, the book wouldn't exist. I mean, she, as I said, when I broke this all down and I got back to Moshi at the top Mm -hmm. of the book, the yep. moment Shona shows up, the, the book begins to, you know, the airplane's on the runway, the, the wheels come off the, the tarmac. Yeah. As soon as she enters the, the the book, you know, the movie starts to play. And there's no stopping it at that mm-hmm. point. And that's really how, kind of how the book was, was happened, you know. Yeah. And I like to think that, you know, that my mother and grandmother had something to do with the shaping of that character. But the truth is, after Shona became Shona, she became herself. Yeah. She had elements of, you know... Yeah, yeah. She didn't look like, you know, I see everything in black and white. So I, you know, she didn't, she didn't have much, she didn't look like my mother or my mm-hmm. grandmother, but she had that power that a woman of that time, particularly a Jewish woman at that time would have given that, you know, m- most of the Jewish women in that town would, you know, they would just, they were placid. They didn't, they didn't say anything. They just went, went along and so forth. They didn't know what to keep from the old life and what to leave behind. But Chona wasn't having any of that. Mm-hmm. Chona was a real American and um, and she could ball her fist up and swing back. And I like characters like that. I don't want someone, you know, I don't, we don't need to go to a peace conference to have what we need. You know, let's go ahead. I mean, she was willing to fight which, for what she wanted, which was what we all wanted. She and Hetty from Deacon King Kong <laughs> might share a little DNA. Interesting. Yeah, I never thought of that. But Hetty's Hetty's got a little bit of are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, just thinking about some stuff that happens early on in in Deacon King Kong and Well, Hetty was more a little more cynical though than Chona. Okay. Chona is a more world wary, a wider red person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is getting she's getting her information from the Jewish newspapers in New York mm-hmm. and San Francisco and Emma Goldman and all these people in these union, these union socialists, railroad workers who come right. in at her store. She's getting all that and she's loving it. Yeah. 
was Hetty was living in that tight world in New York where if you make one mistake, you end up in jail and you have to watch everyone. And her her husband was not the man he should have been. Hetty in some ways more deadly because if she, you know, if she got mad at you, she'd really come at you hard. But she's she's a little more I'd say more savvy, a little more wise. Okay. Okay. A little more wise. She's fun to read. She's really fun to read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I like spending time with these people. Yeah. Do you miss Chicken Hill? I was thinking you might. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. I do. I do. Chicken I miss that. I miss Malachi and Moshi's friendship. I miss Chona, of course. I miss Nate's, you know, solidity and but you know once you leave that place that's it you know you yeah. can't you can't go back you can't do a part two i mean i'm sure some people do a part two a part mm-hmm. three, but um I'm, I'm like i feel more like satchel page what's the point of looking back there's always more stuff ahead you know there's new songs to write new places to go new people to meet so i miss it but you know there's always a new garden to make you know there's always seed all you gotta do is walk out your door and Say hello to somebody, you know? <laughs> hey, so, of course, we're bumping up against time because I knew that would happen. But, you know, without giving too much away, and I know I hinted at this character before, but this kid, Monkey Pants, I really love this character. And he is not like anyone I've met in a book in a really long time. And I just feel like we can talk a little bit more about him without totally giving stuff up, if you agree. Sure. I mean, Monkey Pants is, you know, is a seminal character in the book is yeah. because his courage and his humanity yeah. you know, powers the book and really helps save Dodo's skin. And it's I think it's important that you have characters that don't look like John Wayne and Brigitte Bardot, whoever the hell, you know, Britney Spears. And with all due respect, I mean, this is a kid who's a convoluted, you know, has cerebral palsy. He's, you know, and and what they used to call cerebral palsy. So, um, but inside he's profoundly deep and smart and intelligent. And he manages to get, he manages great things. The lesson there is that children like this have so much to teach us. I mean, first of all, their parents, there's a special heaven for their parents. The truth is their parents get special gifts that most of us who don't have quote unquote disabled kids get. Because this, these kinds of kids have so much to teach, particularly those of us who consider ourselves artists. They have so much to teach us. So Monkey Pants has a lot to show us. And I was so glad to meet him and to yeah. get to know him on the page. Thank you, Monkey Pants. And thank, thank you, you, James McBride. All this right. was so much fun. Thank you so much. Heaven and Earth Grocery Store is out now. And yeah, if somehow you haven't yet read The Good Lord Bird or Deacon King Kong, those are out in paperback. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.